Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and all the way over in London town is Richard Hill, Managing Editor. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. I'm managing editing over here. I actually posted an article just uh, just last night, so that that for the <laughs> December. So that'll be that'll be great. Some beautiful things coming in. I'm here in the somewhat yellowly lit. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure. I'm not where am I? Venus or Mars or somewhere in between? But uh, but it's it's fabulous. Doing very interesting stuff here. Would be I'm going out to a psychotherapy counselling college in Bath mm. on Sunday. Uh, the, the Bath College of Psychotherapy and counseling. And they're sponsoring a, a meeting. So apparently, their large meeting room, they filled. So we, we've got, you know, uh, quite a few people coming in to start. So hopefully, it's the start of many of these talks uh, around the world in Australia. So if you have got an interest and you've got the book and you've got a, a school or you've got a college or a university mm. and you're interested, we actually do travel. Well, Matt sends me out a lot, but, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we do and we tie them in. So, you know, yeah. I've turned this into a six city tour and, uh, 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 it's terrific. So please, and I'm fantastic. looking forward to doing this on Sunday. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll catch up a little bit later and talk uh, a little bit more specifically about what you're doing over there and, and get some stories. But for now, we're going over to the United States. We're going to talk to a, um, a couple of ladies who have written a book called Relationship-Based Treatments of Children and Their Parents, An Integrative Guide to Neurobiology, Attachment, Regulation and Discipline. Now, Richard, these are more friends of yours. Yeah, so this is a part of the good fortune of my interpersonal biology, neurobiology association through the years and known cat particularly through the work with their Austin in Connection, which was uh, fabulous work. They had a wonderful number of people involved in do, doing terrific things. And they've, they've connected Kat and Elizabeth doing this wonderful work together and finally producing their book. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's go across and talk to Kat and Elizabeth. Elizabeth and Kat, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's great to meet you. It's nice to meet you. Pleasure to be here. Yes, and I'm seeing you, and I've kind of know you guys a little bit from some of the earlier IPNB work. So it's 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 really great. Yeah, yeah, good to see you. So so fabulous, and we're very excited about the new book coming out. And Mm -hmm. uh, so we wanted to talk to you. Now, Now it is out, so everybody. You know, you don't have to wait. Just go order it and it'll come within three seconds to your door uh, and you can read it. But I guess we really just, uh, we've given you a little introduction, but do you want to just talk a little bit about the, uh, the you know, this co-work together? Because Matt and I wrote a book together and we we know it, it, it's an interesting experience. We're so still friends. That. We're, we're still yeah, friends. Right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, what, what brought you together and a little bit about the book and and. Uh, get us an introduction so that we can start discussing it a bit more deeply. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, really, Elizabeth and I actually went to graduate school together. So we go way back. That was a long time ago. <laughs> but then, you know, we kind of went off on our own tracks of study. And then we reconnected uh, 10 years ago, more or less. Mm-hmm. And um, at an Austin in Connection meeting um, where we were doing, uh, both of us were on a panel. 
discussion. And uh, so we got excited about what each other was doing. And I felt like what she was doing really would work well with, because I work with parents and adults from an interpersonal neurobiology and attachment perspective. And she was working with parents and children. And um, and she was bringing in some really amazing uh, interventions about learning and discipline that I thought would be really useful for the parents I worked with. And uh, so we started talking. I'll let you say some more if you want. Yeah. No, I, I feel like what we discovered was that each of us was bringing a different piece of the puzzle together and that our puzzle fit pieces fit so well that it just became really motivating to kind of work them in. And so we started doing some talks. Um, and then our talks led to people saying, when's your book coming out? And we were like, <laughs> okay, I guess we'll write a book. And we, we, better, <laughs> we better write one. It's <laughs> fabulous. It's, it's really lovely. And I think that the things where the, the cogs fit, where there's a sort of a, a comfortable distribution of roles and, and, yeah. and personalities. Matt and I, you know, we, we principally you know, get on really well in the same sort of process. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it, it makes decision-making a lot easier, I think. And, and there's a lot of decisions that go in when, when you're writing a book, you know, chapter structures, uh, formats, yeah. uh, uh, disagreements. How did you guys work through those structures in creating uh, the formats? Did you, you know, just how did you do it? Was it interesting or, or do I we want to say that quickly and move yeah. on? Yeah. yeah. No, no, I think we did a lot of trying to to walk the walk. Like the things that we wrote about are about relationships and about how we need one another as humans and children in particular, but even as adults, we need co-regulation, we need communication, we need clarity, we need safety and security. And so we tried really hard to walk the walk, I think, in our day-to-day and working relationship. And then there were times, I mean, we're both what did you said it lovely the other day that we're both strong-willed and, and outspoken <laughs> women. And so occasionally when we would bump into each other, we would just have to really slow down and right. spend a lot of time talking. And basically we would table decision-making yeah. on behalf of talking it through. And normally I think our ultimate product was a whole lot better mm-hmm. for having worked it through rather than bold-headedly pushing one idea or the other. Yeah, we had to, you know, not be afraid of conflict, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> or else you lose some material, right? So, and and really, yeah. we wanted to bring some different worlds together and integrate them because we have, we're looking at in neurobiology, we're looking at attachment, we're looking at emotional regulation and and discipline and learning, and so sometimes these things didn't exactly smoothly fit, right. but we knew that in practice they worked, mm-hmm. and so yeah. trying to put it into language was a challenge and, and but you know we really we worked on it for a long time <laughs> yeah so let's talk a little bit more about this you've got these you know these different areas of neurobiology and other areas of psychology you've 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 melded together give us a little bit of a sense of of how the reader is you know going to be experiencing those things integrated together because it's a it's a yeah. unique mix right the neurobiology, we start with introducing it. And so it it flows through the whole book, though. So we just we didn't want to lose people like going too deep into the neurobiology, but we introduce it as a foundation and the important foundational things that we thought would be key to know as you're going into the book. And then it goes into three separate parts, which are the ones we talked about attachment, emotion regulation and discipline and learning. And then under each of those, you know, we'll bring up neurobiology through it, but we also um, break each of those into four parts. And and 
This took us a while to get to. Yeah, we reorganized <laughs> it two thirds of the way through writing it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and that that breaking it down into um, digestible uh, yes. parts it's very important, isn't it? As your yes, and creating this. a flow that makes sense to the reader that doesn't just make sense to my head that's been thinking about this for ten yes. years. Yes, yes, because we're embracing right. such a huge topic. And it's such a complicated mm-hmm. topic that um, how you put this together is so yeah. very important. Now, I mean, that's what Richard and I found when we were doing yeah. that book as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we talk about after this introduction on neurobiology, in the section on attachment, we talk about like, what is our theory about, about attachment? What is neurobiology? How does that play into attachment? And then what does it look like when attachment's going well in a family? What does it look like when the families have running into trouble around attachment relationships? And then how as a therapist do you intervene? And then we stuck with that pattern for each segment. So again, emotion regulation, neurobiology, and theory. How does it look when it's going well in a family? When it's going poorly, how do you intervene? And then the same for discipline and learning. What does it look like when it's going well? What does it look like when it's off course? And how how do therapists help? Now, we want to look at that a little, little bit more in detail, but I just want to quickly look at the attachment, the framework of attachment, because I think, uh, although I think fundamentally it stayed in a, in a fairly reasonable, uh, uh, coherent um, message, but I think some of the language and the, the the descriptions have varied a bit as we've learned some more and, and done some things. So just give us a little quick rundown of the uh, the nature of the way in which you describe the attachment framework, just uh, just as a bit of a, a teaser as to what they can get in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, like Elizabeth was saying, we look at how um, the and when we say parent, we refer, we're referring clearly to whoever the primary caregivers are. So we're not just talking about, you know, a specific person, but whoever there's being raised by. So that parent-child relationship has a lot of power in that child's development, um, even at a neurobiological level, but also emotionally and um and, and sets the parent up to have a, a relationship that can help with learning and discipline and emotion regulation down the road. So I really see that as, that's why we put that early on in the book is because it's form, it, it forms the child early on and helps to form them over time. I think the other little thing that we tried to make sure to not overlook is the attachment relationship that's co-created between the parent and the child can really vary with a newborn child that's always been raised by this parent versus a child that's been adopted or moved into a family later in life or had a caregiver change. Um, Also, it's influenced heavily by the attachment status of the parents as anyone who reads about attachment knows. And so our idea, because our ultimate goal was really not to be erudite about attachment or about neurobiology, but rather to be practical and give therapists tools they can really, really, really use that'll have an impact we wanted to move out of just theory into impact. And so how do you impact parents with their own attachment wounds or checkered attachment history? As they're raising a child, the child's in front of them, child's been born, we need to have an impact. And so, yes, we all know that the gold standard is earned security, but what do you do while you're waiting for earned security to land? And so that's something that we tried to really um, honor throughout the writing of the book is how can you make changes now? Um, that'll be effective and help the child now. Right. So it's very 
very practically orientated, but what I'm assuming you guys are also wanting to do is set up a framework so that when the therapist is presented with these complex situations that we were presented with, that they have a solid um, framework and perspective um, to to see these dynamic and complex systems. Would I be right? Yeah, and and give them a give them a, some ideas of where to start. <laughs> yes, yes. Give those practical starting points. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the big things that we 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 have a sort of a silly joke. I think it's in other countries as well, uh, but where the, the the city slicker sort of driving through the country and and he, he gets lost and so he stops and asks the local, uh, "How do I get to Burke from here?" And the local mm-hmm. scratches his chin and says, "Well, don't start from here." And, <laughs> And that's it's got a good response. I'll say that one again. But but it is a thing, and I think a lot of people say, uh, even when they see uh, in some of the textbooks or in some of the general things that, uh, you know, this is what you do and this is how you fix it, that they say, yeah, but uh, – and that getting back to a place to start, uh, yeah. I think, is really important. And are there – can you give us some insight on perhaps – what some of the specific things are, but maybe there's a little case or a little story that uh, will example the, the sort of practical activities that people could utilize. Well, maybe something that emphasizes we've really been thinking lately about how small changes matter. So, you know, not to get hung up on just what's not going well, but to really move a parent in a direction that's more therapeutic for their child, in, even in small steps. Mm-hmm. The thing that's kind of lodged in my mind, maybe in front of a case, is the notion that I see this as as so interconnected, that the emotion regulation or regulation in general, discipline and learning, attachment are so interconnected that you don't even necessarily have to think you're entering at the attachment door. If you enter through the discipline door and you tug on that, it's like a spider web. And if you change the way you're dealing with behaviors of your child in your home, it has ramifications for the emotion regulation status of the family. It has regulation for the attachment patterns in the family. So no matter where you yank on it, it's going to affect the entire system. Um, And so, So what I find is when people come to me, they typically are upset about a child's behavior. That's just why I get phone calls. I uh, work with people whose kids are behaviorally intense. And so what's in front of them is not, I need to do my attachment work so that I can have some earned security, so I can provide a secure attachment for my seven-year-old so that he and I can regulate so that discipline will go more smoothly. (laughs) That's not in the mind of the person who just called me on the phone. What's in the mind is how do I get him to stop pinching his sister, right? So if you want to start where somebody is, well, that's attunement is to start where someone yep. is. So it is attachment, even though we're talking behavior. And if you work with parents on how are we going to deal with this pinching incident, that's where the energy is. So you start talking about let's have some clarity about what the rule is, what's inbounds and out of bounds. Let's set the limit um, in a state of calm. Oh, you can't set the limit in a state of calm. Suddenly we're talking about emotion regulation, but now it's relevant to the parent. Because they're trying to set a limit, but now their goal is to set it in a state of calm, right? Um, you talk to them about, well, can we talk to your child positively and enthusiastically when pinching is not occurring? Oh, well, that's a novel idea because mostly we're just 
hollering when pinching is occurring. So then you're opening up opportunities for positive experiences between the parent and the child and for reflecting successes, right? Being able to mirror back success. And then that inevitably opens the door to, well, my mom and dad never did that with me. And next thing you know, you're in the parent's <laughs> attachment history. So right. I just yeah. feel like it doesn't matter where you tell, you can get any yeah. of it. Yeah, that's okay. I, I love that metaphor. Yeah. Can I just ask? So, when you're working with parents, how much do you touch on the theory with them? Do you, do you uh, approach the theory, try to give them some insight into what's really happening, sort of, you know, behind the curtain? Yeah, that, that psychoeducation mm. that, that is talked about, I think, has got a lot of reasonable stuff to it. But what have you guys found? One one thing I like about using the neurobiology, um, even in attachment theory as well, is that especially neurobiology, how it's depathologizing. Yeah. You know, like we've all got these ranges of our sympathetic nervous system or our parasympathetic nervous system. And if we're in a certain state, um, if we're in fight or flight, we're limited on what we can do. And if a child's in fight or flight, they're limited on how they can connect with their parent. And so I like it because parents can um, can work on regulating themselves with a clear understanding of that process and that it's not immediate. And I think it um, instills uh, patience if people can understand that and also less shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah and it's all about the patient. If you talk to a parent and you start to talk about polyvagal theory and they glaze over, that person doesn't want theory. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. That person may just want you to relate to them in a warm and attuned way and experience safety. Other people may really want to bring their brain on board and understand what's going on, apply it to their children, go do more readings. And so I figure I'm yeah. going to go in whatever door it rings a bell for them. Absolutely. And I'm sure we've all been there. We've, we've had clients who really want, tell me, tell me more about the yeah. the, the yeah. theory, the neurobiology and others. Yeah. Glaze over. I already, this book came out November 1st. I don't know what today is. It's the 11th. I've yeah. already had two parents come in with my book saying, I read your book and oh, wow. I want you to talk to me about page 38. <laughs> Those people want, they want the science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you have to go, well, hang on, what was on page 38? <laughs> yes, 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 that is the trouble. But I did, I had a fascinating couple who were, were astrophysicists and it was a terrible couple relationship. They were, they were argued all the time, but they would both uh, come together when I was theorising, when I was giving theory. They'd say, well, how, do, how does that work? And I'd explain it and that yeah. kept it together. Together, as soon as they figured out, then they'd argue about what I said. But it was uh, eventually, eventually we sorted something out. But, but yeah. it's interesting. So, what's your thoughts about when you're working with the family, working with children? Uh, sort of a, a, a group effort. Is that also an individual thing? Whether you work with the children on their own or with the children and the parents, or um, what are the sort of things you talk about in the book about that sort of process? So, Cat works with parents principally and couples. Um, and doesn't really bring children in. My understanding is you don't tip seldom. Them. Yeah. yeah. Um, my I consider myself a child therapist, and so I won't open a case for anyone older than sixteen. So I'm always opening the case in the name of the child on behalf of the child. But the system that I've developed is: if you want me to work with your child, you got to do the parenting work first. And right. so I always begin with parenting work, and then I see how far I get. And for some people, parenting work is it. And at the end of having the parenting work, they're like, thank you very much, Dr. Sylvester. This was very helpful. Goodbye. And I've not worked with the child at all. Probably 30% of my cases after the parenting work is done, I pause and reevaluate and say, okay, the parenting is as good as we're going to get it right now. Does this child need occupational therapy? 
Do we need an evaluation for medication? Is the school not the right school? Does the child need individual psychotherapy? And in that case, am I the right therapist or should it be someone with a different skill set than mine? Um, is family therapy called for? And so mm. then at that point of reevaluation, individual therapy for a parent. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. at that point of reevaluation, then sometimes I will turn it into a family therapy case with parents and children in the same room or an yeah. individual case just with a child. Now, because of the collaboration between the two of you in writing the book, how has it changed or has it changed um, either of your approaches to therapy? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Probably have to lay some context. We've been working on this for 10 years. Like I said. Right. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, definitely. And I think that's what really uh, drew me to working with Elizabeth is I liked what she was bringing um, to her clients. And I was like, I want to learn more about that. You know, I know a lot about the science and the theory, and I understand about attachment and working with adults. I want to hear more about what she's seeing with kids. And um, mm -hmm. and, and it really shaped how I work with my clients and, you know, uh, I think shaped on how I see a lot of things are working together over the last decade. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of things I used to do intuitively, I now know what they're called, thanks to her <laughs> having taught me some theory that I didn't know or some neurobiology that I didn't know. I'm loving hearing about all these, the ways and approaches, uh, the flexibility. Um, but maybe, you know, the, we're talking about practicality. Are there actually a couple of little nuggets, a couple of little uh, uh, action things that you can you can give to us that uh, share with the people that, uh, that you've got in the book? One of the things that we put together during our work was um, call, we called it the seven essential attachment needs. And so with our work, I mean, we're both parents and we're therapists and we read a lot. So we, we were digging through all these things and, and, and it's like making a stew. We kept boiling it down. <laughs> and so we came up with these seven essential attachment needs and that we felt, uh, you know, kind of covered the ground. And so something therapists can use to check in with how things are being covered. Uh, like Elizabeth said, you know, that clients can bring them up and ask about them as well. Um, so we have, um, the first one is safety and security. The second one is soothing or nurturing. The third one is attunement, that being seen. Uh, the fourth one is being reliable and consistent, being consistently available. Uh, support and encouragement is the next one. And then uh, for number six, uh, our favorite, novelty, play, and fun. <laughs> and then number seven, to contain the novelty and play, boundaries and structure. <laughs> right. <laughs> you want to add anything yeah. to that? Yeah. I, well, just I, while you're thinking that, uh, uh, Elizabeth, because it was fascinating. My, my wife, who worked a lot uh, uh, we're now we later marriage, but she worked a lot with scouts and and young people. She said it was extraordinary that if you set boundaries and perimeters with these boys, so she's there with fourteen, you know, crazy, you know, twelve year old boys. <laughs> if you set the boundaries and said you can play any way you like within those boundaries, she said yeah. more often than not that they were totally happy to do so. And uh, so hearing those two 
in there as your six and seven uh, are, are really, they just resonate. I think, wow, I, I'll go tell Susie, yeah, you were on the ball. Yeah, yes, she was spot right. on. Right. Yeah. 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 Children need to know what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. And when we talk about that, we having broken these sections down into, you know, what it looks like when it's going right, what it looks like when it's going wrong, how to intervene. One of the big things that we look at is, is there clarity? Do right. children have clarity about what's in bounds and out of bounds? And clarity is not just posting a list of rules and saying, no hitting. You know, you may not bite other people. We have to use <laughs> gentle touches. Like you can put that list up. That doesn't really create clarity. Yeah. Clarity is only created when you hold the boundary. You don't just talk about it, right? So yeah. how do you create a boundary and then hold it in a way that's consistent so children know what they get if they follow the rule? And what they get if they break the rule. And ideally, just a teaser for what comes if you want to read more, ideally when they're inbounds and following the rule is when they get loads of positives, positive right. regard, fun, more interpersonal connectivity, more joy, more action, more eye contact, more everything when you're inbounds. And then when you're out of bounds, you get reliably a very clear but neutrally articulated limits set with you. No mm. hitting. Yeah, yeah. And so, you stop hitting. And if you bring the energy down, right. then any kid with any intensity at all knows where the fun is. The fun is when you're in the rules. That's when all the action happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And so breaching boundaries, great opportunity for learning within bounds, great opportunity to really have fun and enjoy life. Right. And that is the teachable moment is when kids are doing well, is when their brains are integrated, when they're in a positive state. They're not in fight or flight. Nobody learns when they're in fight or flight. You're fleeing Mm. for your life, right? You're trying really hard to kick this person because you're feeling threatened. That's not a learning state, but you can create a learning state in when the child is being successful by creating joy. And then the lesson goes in. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that's a steep learning curve for a lot of parents. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, even culturally, we think you need your pound of flesh when a child misbehaves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although a lot of parents find it quite a relief also right. because they know that what they've been doing is not effective. And so when they can, you know, bring it down some notches and focus on reinforcing when things are going well and setting limits, we're not saying let anything go. We're saying, you know, you still set clear limits, but uh, yeah. It's okay not to have immediate control. That's not the goal. Yeah. Now, now you said you had some clients come to you with the book saying, you know, they want to talk about uh, what's in the book. But uh, have you written the book primarily for therapists, or is <laughs> yeah, or is it for everyone? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Our goal was to um, shorten the learning curve for young and early career therapists so they didn't have to wait till they were 60 years old to (laughs) to have figured out what kind of stuff works for children and families. Um, So ideally, um, people will be able to like advance more quickly and not just wait for clinical wisdom to arrive. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And I think that's that's terrific. But I just want to jump back uh, uh, back in the direction we were because one of the words that you used in talking about the, the framework with the parents themselves, the children, and the interrelation between them, which I think is incredibly important, is the word shame. Uh, mm-hmm. And this this way of uh, – and I think what, what I – I, uh, what I'm feeling and hearing that that certainly when you're uh, working and vigorously 
punishing or criticizing or or chastising mm-hmm. someone when they're in their fight or flight, that right. that actually has the opportunity to develop this shame, uh, a more of a there's something wrong with you type of right. framework because they're in there. Anyway, I'm just sort of rambling with my own thoughts. I'm just right. wondering, uh, but if you could talk about that a little bit, a little bit more, because the parents must also feel it as well as a problem yes. factor. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, go ahead. It lit you up. Oh, you lit me up? Okay. Yeah, I think I think that shame is an equal opportunity um, opponent when you're dealing with, with um, this. It's even embarrassing for your child to act out in the grocery store, and then you feel it's easy for parents to feel I better yell at him because otherwise I look like a bad parent, right? And, and so we do put a lot of emphasis on um, trying to teach when things are going well. And then being regulated and pretty neutral when things are going poorly, just setting the limit and moving on, which decreases the shame in the child. And then quickly getting back on the horse of praising the child. Oh, now you're not hitting. You're not hitting anymore. Awesome. That's an excellent example of self-control. You hit, I told you to stop, and you stopped. High five, right? And so that's a pretty good antidote for shame. Parents feel proud of themselves when they can um, do that. But it is inevitable that parents are going to misstep and kids are going to misstep. And no matter how much you adhere to your new um, parenting approach, that one day you're going to lose your grip as a parent. Mm -hmm. And so we do put a lot of emphasis also on repair and on mending when there's been a rupture in the parent-child relationship, um, on being sure to come back and kind of circle the love back to the kid if you've gone through even a brief period of acrimony or losing your temper, threatening, raising your voice. Yeah. Because in that rupture and repair is also a lot of potential for learning that that's, that's something that uh, is, you know, we all make mistakes and mistakes don't mean that you're a bad person and, you know, repair is possible. If we don't make that repair step, that that can be harmful to a child and they can walk around feeling that there's something bad about them. So yes. Can hurt their self worth. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it, it's it's such an important aspect. I remember a little story that was uh, well, I'm not, I'm not sure whether it was in the which work, but it was just a story of a child and the, they they misbehaved and the grandmother who they were very fond of, uh, you know, chastised them and uh, um, and mm, yeah. the, the poor child was right. terribly felt terrible and came back and and mm-hmm. said the very shame thing oh you know i'm sorry that i was bad and i uh, and i'm I, and you, do you love me will you keep loving me and the grandmother was right on the ball she said oh no it's nothing about you i love mm-hmm. you what you did was a problem mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i hope you don't do that and i'll help you not do that anymore mm-hmm. but you so distinguishing between those um those uh, errors of self and just the errors of action uh, mm-hmm. is something that we don't spend enough time so I'm, I'm really looking forward to to looking at the way you uh, more deeply the way you address this it sounds mm-hmm. it sounds really fascinating and, and 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 I think much needed because it's it's a sort of a subtlety but even though for us who are used to it it sounds like an obvious thing but I think for the average parent it's a bit of a subtlety right mm-hmm. yeah. but how can children own their humanity that all of us are flawed and all of us are also wonderful so can we be flawed in the context of also being amazing? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us here and talking about the book. Is there, as we sort of wrap up, is there some final words that you would like to leave with our listeners? 
the one thing we've seen across the board that's encouraging for parents is just, just having one person who cares, one person who's present and available can make all the difference in a child's life. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess I'd like, I would add that any movement in the right direction, even baby steps in the right direction can have a profound difference. Uh, can make a profound difference in the life of a child. Yeah, we, we are so keen in, in talking about thinking in systems, thinking in the idea of small small inputs can have very large outputs and we're, we're not restrained, uh, uh, as you're saying, to, to have to do big things and to get big results. Uh, and uh, that's the that's a, a wonderful part of, of what you've got in the book. And, uh, you know, bringing together a, a new story in the IPNB um, sort of many episodes is is a wonderful is a wonderful thing and uh, and I'm I'm so glad Austin uh, in connection was was a wonderful uh, beginning group and it's it's expanded and done some more some marvelous yeah. stuff and we thank you so much for all the work you've done and for joining yeah. us today. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah, Kat and Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Thank you. Well, wasn't that great? I loved them. Uh, I love that yeah. sort of stuff. So many ideas. And this idea that more people are bringing more ideas together and giving them mm. some kind of kind of connection and, and coherence. Yeah. Um, because we are all one thing. I, I was saying this in a, a, a workshop today, actually. I said we have all these different schools, we have different fields and different practices, but the client comes to them, comes to us with all of those needs. They yeah. don't come to us with a with a saying, oh well, I'm only here to see of this or I'm only here to see of that. They come to us with a bunch of needs. And and yeah. these ladies have done a uh, sounds like a wonderful job. I haven't seen the book yet. I'm really looking forward to doing that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm loving the ideas because I know the work they do. Yeah, fantastic. So let me just remind you once again, the book is Relationship-Based Treatment of Children and Their Parents, an Integrative Guide to Neurobiology, Attachment, Regulation and Discipline. And as always, we'll put a link in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to support us here at the Science of Psychotherapy, please do jump across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site where you will find an abundance of of, of learning and course material, articles, magazines. It's all there for a single monthly subscription fee. And I'll tell you what, there's something else that people could do. That's being a subscriber is the most connected you can be. But if you go over to our YouTube channel, which mm. is now beginning to fill up with fabulous stuff, we're now sort of expanding into material that's a little bit more general that you can yeah. you can learn for yourself, but also for your clients. And we're going to move into a, a new area, which is the health of you, looking mm. after your health in the science of us. So that's a new thing. So keep an eye on our YouTube channel because we're starting to to grow into that area and uh, very exciting. I'm very excited about that. Looking forward to doing it when I get back. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Richard. And thanks, everybody, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.